Please turn in your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 1. We'll begin our series in this wonderful book of church history, chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. Hear the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. There was a certain man of Remetayim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up, year by year, from his city, to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, as often she went up to the house of the Lord She used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord. And the woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. God of Israel, grant your petition that you have made to him. 
she said, Let your servant find favor in your, own, in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. And they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Thus far the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we start yet another book of your holy word, we pray that you would give us understanding. Not simply the understanding of an ancient place and an ancient people, but Lord, an understanding of the everlasting affection of your heart towards your people. Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us alertness, O Lord, focus, But more than anything, O Lord, we pray for spiritual unction, that the Holy Spirit would give light to our minds. O Lord, give life to our hearts. O Lord, that we might be a people that would perceive the truth that has been assigned to Scripture that reveals your heart through the Holy writings, O Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to any of the books of the Old Testament, inevitably, there is a larger context. After all, the Old Testament is not standalone, and it is certainly the case that the books within it are not themselves divorced from the whole of what we would call the canon of 66 books of Scripture. There are large themes, there are types within the book of 1 Samuel, as there are in the whole of the Old Testament. Types that if you look at from a high and elevated place, you can see these wonderful golden strands that point to the Messiah. And while as we study this book of the Bible, we will do that, we will pursue the greater narratives, the meta-narrative that hangs over the whole of it, this evening I want us to just stop and to enter into the context of this narrative of chapter 1 and to the household of the man Elkanah and his two wives because it's their story and the story of the mercy of God to one of these women that frames for us a culture of faith that goes forward in this book. A culture of faith that will inevitably bear much fruit in the life of the namesake of this book, the man Samuel, who will be a great tool in the hands of the Lord of heaven. It's also a thing, as we introduce the text, to simply say that this passage anticipates the reality of the sovereignty of God, that he, in all of his wisdom, is in full control of the light, pleasant blessings that we often call kind providences. But in his sovereignty, he is also no less an entire control of the heavy, difficult, dark providences of life that are for his people very often heavy burdens, but burdens that lead 
God's people closer and deeper into his purposes and the unfolding of his grace to the whole of those whom he will redeem. So the first thing I want us to see from the passage this evening, we have two points. The first of them from verses 1 through 11 is pain and prayer requests. Pain and prayer requests. Secondly, I want us to see answered prayer. Verses 12 through 20. Answered prayer. In verse 1, we're introduced to a certain man of Ramatayim Zophim. This uh, ancient village that almost none of us would be familiar with. Maybe if you do have some grasp of the geography of the land of Israel, you may know the name Ramah, or maybe from other biblical texts. Even in this passage, whenever they go home, they are said to go to Ramah. But Ramatayim Zophim is the larger name for what was likely a village in the hill country, as we're told, of Ephraim. And this man is a unique man. His name's Elkanah. And I can recall being a kid uh, with a father that loved to hunt. I could always remember the man's name, Elkanah, because the first portion is, of course, elk, or the large stag-like deer. But his name's Elkanah. It's a strong name, but it's a name that's also recorded elsewhere in the Scriptures. We're told of a man who is Elkanah in 1 Chronicles 6, 16 through 30. People have often asked the question, is this the same man? Because here, Elkanah is said to live in this village in the country of Ephraim, and that he's an Ephrathite, but in 1 Chronicles 6, he's said to be a Levite. How does this match? One of the things that I just give you a little bit of a spoiler... I want to tell you simply that we can have our cake and eat it too. We can have 1 Samuel 1 and 1 Chronicles 6. You see, the son of the man Elkanah was who? Of course, it was the great priest and a man who did the work of the prophet in the midst of the people of Israel, Samuel. To be a priest, what do you have to be? A Levite. You have to be a Levite. It is assigned only and uniquely to this one household amongst the 12 tribes of Israel to serve the Lord in the ministerial and religious profession, according to the Old Testament. So how do you make sense of this? We're introduced to Elkanah with his family members, Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite, and then this other account. Is he an Ephraimite? An Ephrathite, a Bethlehemite? That's where the name comes from in the land of Judah, a Judahite? Or is he a Levite? Well, I would encourage you to remember that the Levites were accorded small holdings within the inheritances of other tribes. And this is how we reconcile a biblical text that does not contradict itself. You can look to the scriptures and easily trace that this is the case. And why is it that 1 Samuel here in chapter 1 and in these, this first verse, why doesn't he call him simply a Levite? Wouldn't that clear so much up? Well, I would like to submit to you that whenever he gives to us 
his genealogy, that's precisely what he's doing. He's doing this with people who would have known the name Jeroham, the name Elihu, the name Tohu, the name Zuth. And so he is, yes, a man, a certain man, who, yes, lived at Ramah, Ramatayim Zophim, in the hill country of Ephraim, an Ephrathite, even in the midst of the Judahites, in the town of Bethlehem. But nonetheless, he is himself a Levite. That is not the point of the passage. The author is here just pointing to the specific man, the specific place, the specific family, the household, so that we can get our heads around who this person is that will then give forth such a great child. That's why it's there. But our attention is not supposed to be to then pursue to the very end of the person the simple idea of the person Elkanah. However, as we go on and read, we read in verse 2 that he is a man who has two wives and that the name of one was Hannah, the name of the other, Penina. I think that's pronunciation. Penina. If you look at the Hebrew, it's as close as I can get to it. And that Penina had children, but that Hannah had no children. And of course, as an Old Testament reader, you know... And occasionally we find these sorts of strange families, don't we? We find a a husband with not just one wife, but sometimes two wives, sometimes an even greater multitude of wives, something that sounds like an entire harem of poor and unfortunate women united to them in the bond of marriage. We think of the great father of the household of faith, Abraham himself, a man with two wives, or Jacob. Or Solomon. And we may uh, give ourselves this idea, well, you know, maybe it's just normal. Maybe this is something that was the cultural norm in the Old Testament. Certainly it was the case. After all, we have, not too long ago, studied the idea of uh, the leveret marriage. right? Where you've got a man who has a brother, his brother dies... And his brother was married and had a wife with whom he did not have an heir. And that the brother is supposed to take his brother's wife and then bear for his deceased brother an heir. And that this is according to the command of God. I want to encourage you to understand that at least I think that's not the case here. We have a man who has two wives according to a culture that the Apostle Paul tells us in the New Testament was not so from the beginning. God made Adam, God made Eve, Adam was a one-woman man, that was how it was from the beginning, the design of God, and it was because of the hardness of the hearts of men that the Lord allowed even this kind of relationship. And of course, after reading the name Abraham and Jacob and Solomon, and now Elkanah being added to the list of these men who are in polygamous relationships and marriages, you have to say, Well, it seems that God could use even sinful men like this. Absolutely. But then the story focuses even most specifically on the two women. And we're told that this man, Elkanah, would go up year by year with his wives, presumably, verse 3, 
from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. Now again, the context is early in the life of the people of Israel, isn't it? Of course it is. Because Shiloh is the location of the worship of the God of heaven that precedes that being located in Jerusalem. Why aren't they in Jerusalem? There's not a temple. This is the place where the tabernacle is. It's even called in this passage of scripture a temple, but undoubtedly there is no contradiction. It is still the tabernacle. It's the tent wherein the ark is stored and the sacrifices are made. It's the regular cultural epicenter of the spirituality of the people of Israel. We're given something of the character of the man, Elkanah, the Levite, living in the hill country of Ephraim and Ephrathite. And he goes year by year, year by year in obedience to the city of Shiloh to worship and to sacrifice. It's with his whole family. Just with one spouse, the one whom he loves, doesn't have kids, it's a whole lot easier to move down the road with, but also with the other wife, with lots of kids, little boys, little girls, and all the difficulty that ensues with moving children to and fro along the distance of a family. And everybody in the room that has children today would say, and it's hard to get them to places of worship, right? He takes his whole family because they are about the task of being obedient. But you see, it's whenever they go here to the place of Shiloh to be obedient to God and to offer to him worship that we see the rub, the women, their narrative comes in to focus. Hannah, the woman with no children, barren, whose womb, the text tells us, the Lord has closed. And then you have Penina, the woman with many children. Sometimes you'll read a commentator and they guess at certain things. And I think this passage leaves us a fair amount of things to guess about. Some will ask, was Hannah the first wife who bore no children? Penina, the second wife taken on for the sake of bearing children? Maybe. That's a conjecture. Could be held. It's convenient and it makes sense, but the text doesn't insist upon it. But what we are told is that whenever the women and whenever the man went together to worship as a family, that this thing would happen. That Elkanah would sacrifice, taking the animal and sacrificing it by giving it to the priest who would kill it and then give it back to them so that they might eat it and take and be nourished by the sacrifice and built up in life, having taken the life of the animal so that they may eat it and be built up by its death. Again, a golden thread that points toward a much greater reality that is focused in the New Testament and the work of Christ. But that Elkanah went and sacrificed and would take the animal and bring it back and have it to his family. And that what did he do? We're told of a dynamic and one that, well, was difficult. He would give to Penina that which was owed to her the portions for her and the children. But we're told here in the passage in verse 5 that to Hannah he gave a double portion. His heart for her. He loved her even though the Lord had closed her womb. And in verse 6, 
and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And so you enter into her experience. A woman who was loved by her husband, who I think it's fairly safe to assume, reciprocated a heart of love to him. She lived in covenant with him. Who within her flesh had felt the staggering disappointment and sorrow of barrenness. Not just for one season, not for two seasons. Months and months and possibly years and years. As this other wife, this other woman has come into the house and is bearing children one after another. There's a multiplicity of offspring that is through her, this other woman, yet not from her own womb. The feeling of insufficiency and pain that ensues from this thing. You can understand it. Just hearing the testimony of women who struggle over barrenness and even their husbands that feel the weight of it. What's wrong with me? Am I up to ask? Am I equal to this thing? This thing that I'm made for? Go therefore and multiply. She can't multiply. A heavy weight, an existential weight that affects the way a person sees themselves and the pain that comes along with it. And even the pain that comes along with the simple desire to be a mother, a parent, to hold the child in your arms and for the wife, the woman, the mother at the breast. Excruciating pain of its own, even if it exists in silence. And here... In the context of the worship of this family in Shiloh, as the husband shows preference and love towards this woman who bears the weight of her barrenness by giving her a little more, a double portion, her rival, verse 6 calls her, provokes her grievously to irritate her. Maybe a kid looks and says, Mommy, why doesn't she have children? What's the swipe? What's the grab? What's the irritation? Is it Panina saying, I don't know, why don't you go ask her? The horrible pain. However it was, it was a grievous thing. It was a pain. It was something that beat the woman down. And what we're told is in verse 7 that this went on year by year. Again and again, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. You see, it's that context again. It's the pain. Now, we can only guess at this, but would Hannah have felt the weight of it as the year progressed, as the days grew nearer and nearer and nearer to the day of sacrifice, to the day of worship? As Elkanah came and said, hey, you should prepare. In two days' time, we're going to go and we're going to be in Shiloh and we're going to worship again. And the dark grief grips her heart. How did it affect her worship? How did it affect her heart to God when she came? I think it's enough to just simply imagine that the answer should be summed up in one word. Tremendously. 
She's grieved. She's full of pain. She's full of sorrow. She's full of an overwhelming, horrible experience that is heartbreaking for her. In verse 8, we read the account after years of this happening of Elkanah, her husband, coming to her and confronting her. And really, his words give us a picture, don't they? Hannah, why do you weep? Not just why do you cry, why do you weep? The heavy weight of grief. And why do you not eat? You see, he's bringing the portion to her. They're there in the context of worship and Shiloh. She's weeping, not rejoicing. She's, she's starving and not feasting. And why is your heart sad? And then Elkanah utters one of those truly man statements that all of the men in the room should note down and say, never, ever, ever do this. To the grimy woman who simply wants the little boy from her womb, he says, am I not more to you than ten sons? Well, it's only a grace of the Lord that her response isn't recorded. She had a simple desire. She loved her husband. It wasn't reduced or diminished at all. But her experience was pain, excruciating pain, pain that drove her in the season where she should be worshiping and praising to be sorrowing, mourning, and starving. In verse 9, we read that after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, that Hannah rose, and that Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And we're told of her condition in an even more deep way. I mean, obviously, he prevailed upon her, and she ate and she drank, but nonetheless, in verse 10, she was deeply distressed... And then she took her distress to the right location. She prayed and she wept bitterly. It's a picture of a broken person that's been holding on to the weight and the anguish of her broken state for years in here. Verse 10, she places that in the only place of safety. On her knees before the Lord, crying out for help. That's the depiction. You can't help but enter into this a little bit. It's so descriptive. You've got Eli there and he sees the woman coming. And obviously it's a thing that can be read on her face. It can also be heard, at least to some sense. We don't hear her voice, obviously. But nonetheless, there she is, weeping. You're just sitting on the chair. Who is this? It's kind of a strange picture. A little bit comical in a sense. As he does his work and executes his mission as a Levite and a priest. Then we turn back again to the woman. We're told that she vows a vow to the Lord. And she says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. 
She covenants with the Lord. That's the language. She binds herself. It's as if by the Lord's means and on his terms, she grabs the hem of his garment and stops him in prayer and pleads with him. Lord, if you give me a son, if you would remember me, I'll give him to you. And I'll see to it that he's sanctified to you. She invokes a biblical vow. You may already be aware of this. It's the Nazarite vow. You can read a little bit more about it in number 6 or also in Judges 13.5. Where a man is set aside for the service of the Lord. Specifically, uniquely, he's not like everybody else. He doesn't touch dead bodies. He doesn't eat honey. He doesn't cut his hair. Some strange things that go along with him, but he's a man that is pointedly about the business of God. That's the whole thing in focus. She says, Lord, if you give me a baby, a little boy, he's yours. And I'll see to it that he's prepared. She covenants with him. So what do I want us to see from this section? It's this. That our God is powerful in our light providences and in our heavy ones. He's in control of our debacles and our blessings. He's not powerless to help, nor is he deaf to hear the cries of his people. And he's not ignorant of the distressed, disturbed, and broken heart that cries out to him. Oftentimes people say, you know, I feel this bad. I feel horrible. I'm breaking inside. My my whole life's turned upside down. Maybe they have this sort of existential issue. Maybe it's a woman. Maybe it's, it's a man. Because we, after all, we know that it's not only the womb that can be closed. These deep issues, these these personal problems. What do I do? What do I do? I'm sorrowing. And what I would say to you is simply this. Believe in the God who is sovereign and go to Him by His means. By the means of prayer to cast yourself not simply down in the issue and the pain of your problem, but upon His goodness. Believing He hears and He has an ability to help. Go to Him on His means, not on our means. Go to Him on His means. So that we might receive blessing and help in time of need. That's what she did. An evidence of a broken heart, but a heart that also had faith. Or else she wouldn't have been at the temple of the Lord crying out next to Eli. She would have been doing a million other things. Secondly, answered prayer. Verses 12 through 20. We're told of Eli's experience of this. He looks over and sees her. Cast upon the ground, the weight of grief upon her body, and he observed her mouth, verse 12 tells us. 
Verse 13, Hannah was speaking in the heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Now this would be a strange thing to see anywhere, wouldn't it? Somebody who obviously is broken, probably in tears, on their knees, in prayer, and the lips are just going, but there's no voice. It's just not audible. It's a strange thing, really. And he's got a response to it, doesn't he? He's, he's a sensible man. He, he's a spiritual leader called by God. But he looks to it, and his interpretation is she must be a drunken woman. Verse 13. What's going on? That's just way too much wine in that lady's life. He responds to her, verse 14, How long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. And then Hannah breaks in her prayer and she turns to him and answers. She says, no, my Lord. She's not calling him her Lord, her master, but her superior, if you want to understand it in those terms. No, my Lord. And she expresses herself, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Isn't that a definition of prayer? The pouring out of one's soul before the Lord? That's how she understands what she's done. I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Verse 16, do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Don't you understand? I'm so broken, I'm so affected that I don't even have words. But what has she been doing? Nonetheless, she's been praying. A heart opened before the God of heaven. A heart broken, being given over and displayed to the only one who can heal and deal with the hearts of humanity. It's submitted to him. Just as what it is, the broken heart of a woman that desires a child, given over to God. And you see this about face in the response, this this turning around of Eli. He looks at her in verse 17 and gives response to what she has said in correction. That indeed she's not a drunk woman. He answers, he says, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. Announces a benediction on her. It's as if her response to him makes everything clear. He sees it for what it is and he understands. And then he joins her in a petition to the Lord. Oftentimes it's understood that a benediction is a proclamation of blessing. After all, don't we do this at the close of every service? You see me hold the Bible in one hand and raise my hand and I proclaim the blessings of God over you, the people of God. Yes, but that's in faith. Even in the proclamation, it is a request. It is, after all, a proclamation. It is a pronouncement of blessing that itself believes and relies upon God to give the blessing. That's what he's doing for the woman. In peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. You see, he doesn't have power to grant it. 
but God does. May the Lord answer your prayer. He could have just simply said that. And then she goes away after having worshipped the Lord, giving her heart over to Him. Let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she's done. We look ahead, and in verses 19 and 20, we're given a brief account that the family, once again, rose early in the morning. They worshipped before the Lord, and they went back to their house at Ramah. Again, that same place with a larger name in the hill country of Ephraim. And we're given this really Old Testament phrase, and Elkanah knew his wife. They were intimate. We'll leave it there. He knew his wife. The language of marital intimacy. And the Lord remembered her. God answered her prayer. But notice the language. It's the language of remembrance. Yes, of course, Elkanah knew his wife in an intimate way. Of course, yes, that's, a, that's how babies are made. We get this. But it is the God of heaven that remembered her, the woman on her knees who had been before her God, even with a broken heart. He remembered her because she had come before him. What's the point? Is that every prayer of the people of God, every prayer of the people of God uttered in sincerity to Him is received without an ounce of malice, but with a heart of love. It is where the people of God commune with the Lord. To put it into really simple terms, it's a whole lot like a child climbing into the lap of a father for comfort. Of course he remembers her and her tears, the shaking of her body. And out of a heart of love, he answered her, the woman that made a vow for the child that she was begging for to be given back to him. The prayer of faith is precious to the Lord. And the Lord has appointed it for our blessing. Do you pray in faith? Or are your prayers only prayers of doubtful desperation? Do you pray in faith or do you only pray prayers of doubtful desperation? What do I mean? Well, the prayer that asks the Lord for a thing but has no expectation that the Lord might ever give it. You ever prayed a prayer like that? Be honest with yourself. You ever prayed a prayer and said simply, maybe even you prefaced it, Lord, I don't think you'll do this, but. Well, I want to call you a Christian to pray the prayer of faith, to give your heart freely, to use the phrase that was so precious to Calvin a heart promptly and sincerely offered to God. Believing that God hears and that if we have communion with Him in prayer, that He will remember you because you have been with Him and that He will answer your prayer according to His will and His purposes.
I think far too often Christians don't pray because they don't believe God answers prayer. Or if they do pray, they pray doubtful prayers because they don't believe God answers prayer. Again, the whole charge of this this evening is to say to you, the sovereign God of heaven answers prayer. Regarding your pains, regarding your blessings, your victories, your failures, your weaknesses, and your strengths. Faith in God and pray. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures, for the ancient account of your everlasting mercy to your people. Lord, that we can hear, we can hear these, these accounts of these ancient people in ancient places that we'll likely never go and never lay eyes upon, yet people whom we can entirely relate to and who experienced you as the same God of heaven then as you are today over us. Lord, I pray that you would stir us to be a believing people. Lord, you desire our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a broken people that would offer them sincerely to you. Lord, we would believe that you answer prayer. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.